Right. Sorry about the delay, everyone. Uh, and apologies to those of you who can't actually read your hand out like me. Um, <laughs> delighted to welcome uh, Professor Alison Hills from the University of Oxford, who is going to talk to us about moral and aesthetic value. Thank you, Alison. Moral and aesthetic virtue. Right. Um, <clears throat> thanks very much for coming. Sorry about the circumstances. Um, okay. <coughs> So there's a very big question at the back of this talk, which is what connections, what relationships are there between ethics and aesthetics? And in what way, if any, does competence in aesthetics, getting good at making aesthetic judgments or having aesthetic responses, uh, contribute to ethics, right action, good judgment, and things like that? So that's a those are very big questions. I'm going to focus on a narrower question here, which is to what extent does an idea of virtue that's quite familiar to us in ethics, of ideas of the moral virtues, play a role in aesthetics? So is, is, can we make sense of an idea of aesthetic virtue and does it play an important role in aesthetics as many people think virtue play, including me, think it plays an important role in ethics? And so that will be the main focus of this paper. And I will also address at the end a question of this relationship between them. So does aesthetic virtue um, somehow lead to or contribute to moral virtue? So if you think about um, history of philosophers writing about ethics and aesthetics, there are some very major figures, and they've had very different views about the relationship between ethics and aesthetics. So Hume, for instance, thinks of both as really a kind of uh, sort of feeling, sensibility, um, and has there, there are very strong continuities between ethical judgment and aesthetic judgment. Kant, who disagrees with Hume about almost everything, disagrees about this as well. Um, so he thinks of moral judgment and aesthetic judgment as really very different things. Even though they have some <coughs> important similarities, even for Kant, they're both sort of um, judgments of, of of value, um, and they both have a sort of a kind of universality. They have very different bases. So moral judgments are judgments of reason, same for all rational creatures, whereas aesthetic judgments are based on pleasure, a special kind of pleasure. Um, but they're, they're really very different sorts of things. And on the question of the contribution, again, philosophers have disagreed, um, and uh, one the important philosopher here is uh, Plato, who has, has both sets of views, really, in different parts of his work, both that aesthetics is an important way of coming to moral, no, ethics, moral virtue, um, and in, his, in the Republic, he has the, um, uh, the philosophers who are going to, to know the form of the good, being taught music and, and know, aesthetic um, things as well. Um, and in, uh, he, he seems to think in some places of judgments of beauty as sort of being a, a kind of way of getting to thinking about moral judgments, a way of getting to, to the good. But of course, at the end of the Republic, he banishes the poets because they're, they're teaching you the wrong kind of thing. So the aesthetics can kind of lead you away from, from morality as well. So there are all sorts of different views in, in philosophy about the relation between them and whether aesthetics is a way of getting to, to moral virtue or not. In recent times, there has been some interest in aesthetic virtue. Not a huge amount, but some. And I'm going to mention a few of the very important figures. Um, so one of the major writers on this is Peter Goldie, who has a kind of Aristotelian take on aesthetic virtue. Um, he's thinking of um, aesthetic uh, activity as part of a good life, um, just as Aristotelian approaches think of moral activity and moral virtue as part of a, a, a good life, a life of eudaimonia. He thinks aesthetic virtue and aesthetic activity is like that too. And his hope is to derive an idea of what art is and its value using a notion of aesthetic virtue. So he was hoping to make it the sort of fundamental idea in aesthetics in the way that virtue ethics people think that virtue is the fundamental concept in, in ethics. Um, in contrast to that, um, Dominic Lopez, replying to Goldie, has a rather different view 
a kind of view where uh, virtue is a response to intrinsic value um, and you know, positive feelings towards intrinsic value themselves, intrinsically valuable things. Um, and that's more similar to the sort of view that I'm going to have here, but, but has some, <coughs> some differences that I, um, in particular that it's associated with a, a, a consequentialist view of value, like more value is better, it's good to produce as much as possible, which is not part of my view. Um, and then Matthew Kieran has written more about some specific virtues and vices. I'll mention one of them later. He talks about the vice of snobbery. And in the background, I think, is an idea of virtue, aesthetic virtue, very similar to mine. But it's not, he doesn't give a general account of it. So that's what I'm going to do here. So the first part of this paper, I'm going to talk about moral virtue. As I said, there's loads of stuff written about moral virtue and loads of different ideas about what, what it is and what's really important about it. So I'm going to do a relatively brief sketch of how I think of it why I think it's important. Then I'll turn to aesthetics and, and tell you why the same thing appears in aesthetics and is important there too, and then talk at the end in the third part about the relationship between them. Okay, so the first part is moral virtue. What is it and why is it important? Well, the first thing to say about ethics is that it's about action. It's a practical subject. It's concerned with what we do, and the evaluation of what we do as right or wrong, good or bad. But that's not the only thing that matters. And this is what I think is really the key insight about, about the idea of virtue and its role in, in ethics, is that, that morality is not just about action. It's also about what motivations you have, how you make your judgments, your dis general sets of dispositions, and your, your character. That also matters. So a nice illustration of this, although it's... You know, in its original form, it's not about virtue, uh, is Kant's example of the two shopkeepers, which is familiar to probably everyone here. Um, so there's <clears throat> two shopkeepers, both own shops, and both always give their customers the right change. <coughs> so they do the right actions. But one of them does it because uh, they want their shop to be profitable, they want the customers to come back and say what a good place it is. So they're doing it out of basically their, their interests or the commercial interests. <coughs> the other one does it because it's the right thing to do, because it's honest, because it's their duty, if you can't. Um, <coughs> there's obvious, so both of these characters are doing the right actions. And so in that respect, there's no difference between them. There may even be no important difference between them in terms of the reliability of them to do the right actions, because... It may be so set up that the best way to make your shop profitable is to give the right change reliably. So they might reliably do the right action. But it's still perfectly clear that there's a very good sense in which the, the one who's doing the right thing from the right motivations, um, because it's the right thing to do, is praiseworthy, admirable, in a way that the other one isn't. There's an important moral difference between them. One of them is doing the right thing for the right reasons, morally worthy action, as Kant would say. The other one isn't. They're doing the right action, but not for the right reasons. So the morally worthy actions are these praiseworthy, admirable actions. And when you do morally worthy actions from a settled disposition to do morally worthy actions, to do the right actions for the right reasons, that's what moral virtue is. So I think of it as said orientation of the whole self towards moral value and moral reasons. So there are, way, there are lots of ways in which you can respond to morality, the value, the reasons. Obviously, you can do it through action. So the virtuous people, characteristically, when they're acting in character, they do the right thing. So they give the right change, and they're nice to people, and they're just, and they're honest, and so on, courageous. So you, that is a very important component of, of virtue. You're disposed to do the right actions. But you're also disposed to respond to value and reasons through your non-cognitive attitudes, through your motivations and your feelings and your emotions. So virtuous people care about the things that matter morally. And they act on those motivations. And they take pleasure in doing that and in other people doing it. And they have the right sort of emotions as well. So those can come together as when the uh, shopkeeper has the right motivations and acts on them, 
And you can also be virtuous just in your non-cognitive attitudes when you, you know, see a good action and you, you take pleasure in it, or you, you hear about something, it's a very bad, awful action, and you feel bad or sad or disappointed or angry about it. So you can have the emotional re response itself. That can be a, a, an expression of your virtue. Um, of course, you can be morally virtuous and moral motivations don't have to be your only motivation. So the shopkeeper who is honest doesn't have to be indifferent to whether his shop makes a profit or not. No, he, want, he wants his shop to do well. That's fine. What's important is that the moral motivations play the right role. So they override or they, they come into force when in, the, in appropriate circumstances. So his, his desire for profitability shouldn't override or overcome those moral motivations. That's fine. Um, finally, you can respond to value and reasons with your cognitive attitudes by having the right moral beliefs, like we believe that the right and the important things are important. Um, there are different views, but there are possible different views about what the right cognitive states are here. Is it belief? Is it true belief? Is it knowledge? Is it understanding? My own view uh, is that it's is to understand why your action is the, is the right action. So what's the thing to do and why is it the important thing that's the component of virtue? Um, but that's not the focus of my talk here, but I can say more about that later if you want. Um, so virtue is this, this set of dispositions to re respond in the right way in these different dimensions to what matters morally. And I think the best way of thinking of virtue is like that, as this sort of general disposition towards right things to do. But it's also common, of course, to think about specific virtues. And I think we can think of those as sort of this general disposition in a specific area. Often there are specific areas where there are um, special kinds of obstacles or challenges to being virtuous, particular kinds. Um, so if we think of beneficence, um, beneficence is like the general disposition to do the right thing and to be more uh, orientation towards moral value and moral reasons in the area of helping people, helping people who are in need. So you're disposed to do that. You're supposed to notice when they're in need and to, to do something about it and to do it appropriately. Um, and you're motivated to do it because you think, well, they need help and I can help them. That's why, that's why you do it, not because you know, they might help you back or you want to be a good reputation or you want to be known as a nice person or something, you, you want to help them because they need your they need help. And you've got the you've got the right judgment. So you, you think that you know, this is the thing to do and it's the thing to do because I need help. Again, not because oh maybe that will mean that in the future they'll help me back or sort of my reputation or something like that. Um, so beneficence is, is a virtue. Um, courage also a virtue. Again, there's a sort of general obstacle of, like, it's beneficence. It can be hard to notice that other people need something from you. It can be hard to do the right thing when it's dangerous or frightening or there are, you know, there are things standing in the way like that. So a courageous agent will characteristically take on that situation and, and go ahead and do the right thing for the morally right reasons. And again, because they, because they care about that thing, the, the goal, whatever it is, in this situation, and then they judge it's right to do it for that reason. So that's what I think moral virtue basically is. This orientation towards moral value and moral virtue. And the reason I think it's really important is because it encapsulates this idea that, it, that there's a lot to morality more than just doing the right thing. And that's shown by our responses to the people who do the right thing for the right reasons, who we regard as admirable, we admire them, praise them, and the people who don't, well, we, well, we have different reactions depending on different ways. There are different ways of falling short. So we blame, we find them annoying, we can get angry, indignant, depending on how seriously we think they fall short. And of course, like I said, there are different ways, because there's this different domains in which you can respond to value, um, you can fall short in action um, because you, you, know, you don't do the right thing, but you can do the right thing and not have the right motivations or not have the right judgments, and then you'll still 
falling short of perfect virtue, even though you're doing quite a lot right. So lots of different ways of going wrong. Um, and, yeah, and, and the one way, morally well. Oops. Morally virtue is the, the right response in, um, to, these, to these value things. There are a couple of claims that I mentioned uh, um, that virtue ethics, or, or sometimes Aristotelian virtue ethics makes, that are very ambitious claims for virtue. And I mention them because Peter Goldie has this view about aesthetic virtue, but they're, they're very widely held in, eth in ethics too. <coughs> so two ambitious claims about, about virtue and how it relates to them. So the idea that virtue is this sort of foundational uh, concept in ethics. Um, that, so some people think that we can understand what moral, virtue, moral value is, what moral reasons are, what moral right action is in terms of moral virtue. So it's going to explain all these other things that we're interested in in ethics. So I don't think that's the right way to think of it. I'm thinking of virtue as, as a, uh, understood in terms of a, a notion of right action that we've got already. So I'm thinking of it as the, uh, the explanation is going the other way around, as it were. And I do think that generally it's a you know, better life if you're virtuous. But I'm not going to define what being virtuous is or the virtue in terms of a good life in the way that <coughs> Aristotelian virtue ethics does, either in terms of a good life for, for one person or a good life for a human. Again, two, two ways of thinking of it in Aristotelian virtue ethics. I do think it can, be, can contribute, but that's not, how, you know, that's not what it means to be a virtue, on my view. Um, so the starting point is very different from the Goldie starting point here um, in aesthetics. Okay, so that's what I'm thinking of as, as moral virtue. Um, the next part of it, I'm going to say whether there's anything like this in aesthetics. For those of you who can see, we've come out at the bo bottom of the first page with the handout. Okay. Um, so I think there are several reasons why you might think this, sort of a, this idea of virtue... Is not is not is not going to apply in aesthetics. It's just not a promising place for thinking of virtue. Um, there are several different sorts of reasons for that. So one might be well, you think aesthetics aesthetics isn't a practical subject at all. Like the, you talked about virtue as being like centrally connected with doing the right actions, but aesthetics is not about acting at all. It's about observing and you know, looking at beautiful works of art and having a having a special kind of experience and special feelings and stuff, you don't have to do anything. So any idea that like, incorporates an idea of right action is just not really going to apply here. That's one. Another is, well, you know, there was this focus on motivation and what you, you, know, what you care about. But generally what we're interested in is whether a work of art is any good or not. We often don't know very much about why the artist produced it, what they were thinking when they did. And we don't care much about that either. So it doesn't look like the motivations, are, are, we're interested in having the right kind of motivations. We just care about the product, whether it was good or not. Um, so again, this idea of virtue is kind of generally having the right orientation, doesn't look promising. Third sort of reason, you might think, this idea of like being disposed to do the right thing and have the right response um, assumes there are sort of standards for doing the right, you know, what, what is right and what is wrong, and that there are sort of constraints on agents that they should do the right thing. And that's perfectly right in ethics, where there are clear, there are morally right and wrong ways of doing things, and you should be doing the right one. But aesthetic seems to be all about freedoms. To, you know, artists can produce what they want to produce. They should have creative freedom. They don't have constraints from you know, other people's needs, other people's interests and rights. So there's just nothing like the right aesthetic action. And you know, people's responses <coughs> to works of art are all over the place. They have all sorts of you know, tastes and feelings and emotions and so on. Um, and it doesn't look like there's a right, right response to works of art either. So this idea of you know, getting it right 
doesn't look very promising here either. So I think there are some differences here between ethics and aesthetics, but generally they're very much overstated in those objections, and there's actually a lot more similarity underneath than it might first appear. In particular, I think we can see a very similar phenomenon of our um, caring about whether we think the action that people take in aesthetics <coughs> is right or wrong, and and also caring about why they did it, whether they did it for the right <coughs> reasons or not. So we have the same sort of idea of doing the right action for the right reasons or doing the right action for the wrong reasons or doing the wrong action. Um, so one example of that, I mentioned already, Matthew Kieran talks about the aesthetic snobs. Um, and his example is the Crane brothers from, from Frasier. When you've seen this television series. Um, but basically the idea is that some people um, go to valuable works of art, or go to the opera, say, uh, because they want to hang out with the sort of people who go to the opera, the sort of social elite. Um, they, they really, and they really enjoy it. They take pleasure in it. Now, and those people are doing things, doing, going to see good works of art, and they are taking pleasure in them. So they're doing the right thing, but it doesn't seem like they're doing it for the right reasons. <coughs> in fact, it seems like they're doing it for the wrong reasons. It's not the right reason to take pleasure in and appreciate a work of art because of the other people who are looking at it with you. And I think the reaction that most of us have to people who are snobs is to think, well, they're not, they're not doing it right. We, are, we, don't, we don't think they are praiseworthy. They're not admirable. We think they're kind of ridiculous, funny, and, may, and maybe we have a kind of negative opinion of them as well. And it's, it's not good to be a snob. So snobbishness example where you've got the right action, perhaps, um, but the wrong sorts of reasons. And, of course, snobbishness can lead you to do the wrong actions as well, where you go and see something that's worthless just because other people are so it can lead to the, to the wrong sorts of action. But even when it does the right thing, it's for the wrong reasons. <coughs> so that's Matthew Kieran's example. I've got a couple of others as well uh, on the handout. Um, one more from the, from the point of view of somebody appreciating works of art, and one more from the, from the producer, the creator, the artist. So from the, from the appreciator, think of book reviewing. It is, I think, widely thought that um, there's a practice in book reviewing where... Um, literary critics or literary reviewers in the, in the papers um, praise books written by their friends or praise books written by people who share a publisher with them. It's called backscratching or long rolling because the idea is that they will get it back when they write their book. Their friend or their co-publisher will write a favourable review of them. So one criticism you might make of this is, well, you know, books by your friends aren't always the best books. Maybe you're doing the wrong thing. You're, you're writing a favourable review when you should be writing a, a poorer one. Or you're giving space to this book when there are worthier books written by people who are not your friends, um, who you could be praising. And it's, you know, you're, you're doing it wrong. You're being unfair. You're doing the uh, wrong sorts of action. But even if, it, if your, the book by your friend is really good and you are correctly praising it, it seems like the wrong sort of reason for writing a favourable review. That is by your friend. Um, so you've got the right action but the wrong reasons. Exactly the same way. Now, of course, there's in, in these, this example and in the following one will be the same. There are ethical parts to it. So you might think, oh... Isn't it, aren't you sort of hiding something? You're not fully disclosing things if this book is by your friend and you haven't said that. And maybe you should be telling the whole truth there. Or maybe when you uh, sign a contract to be a book reviewer, you're sort of implicitly or even explicitly agreeing to be fair and not do this sort of practice. And that's why it's unfair to the readers. And so it's a sort of moral thing. 
So I think there are moral elements to it, and you could be doing things that are morally wrong or less than perfect by doing this. But I also think there's a specifically aesthetic thing, that you are not responding to aesthetic value and the aesthetic reasons that are there, given by this book, that you should be responding to in your review. So that would be doing it for the right reasons. So even if you disclosed it, or even if there was nothing in your contract that said you, could, you shouldn't review books by your friends, still think there would be something not, not perfect, not ideal about it. And that thing is not this distinctively aesthetic, not more. So that was an example from, from, the, from the appreciator, from the reviewer. Um, I think we can also see a similar sort of example from, from the artist. So, <coughs> um, so imagine so an artist, who, or I'm saying musician, who's been producing similar work, similar albums, say, and then does something completely different. And the fans that have come up, you know, appreciated the previous work hate this change of direction and say, you've sold out. Right, you were doing this wonderful things, and now you're just going for the commercial, you want to be rich, you want to be famous, you kind of, you know. right. So again, I think there's more than one sort of thing going on. One thing might be that the fans wrongly think that this musician owes it to them to produce the same stuff, or stuff they like, over and over again. So they're accusing of a moral failing for failing to do what they kind of is obliged to do <coughs> wrong. That's, they might be thinking that, but they'd be wrong. Um, part of it might be thinking that this musician has done the wrong thing. He's produced work that's rubbish, and he should have produced good work. So it's the wrong sort of action. And that, again, I think that there could be that. It could be that selling out has produced inferior work. But I think we also get this thing where maybe, maybe it's, it's not bad, but if it was motivated to be famous and rich, that was the wrong sort of reasons for it. Um, so again, it's not what we might call aesthetically worthy, even if it's turned out well. Um, so again, you can think of aesthetic worth as doing the right aesthetic action for the right aesthetic reasons, and what's wrong with back-scratching, log-rolling, and selling out is that that, that, is, that is not possible if you're doing those sorts of things. You might do the right action if you're lucky, but you're not going to do the right action for the right reasons. And I think both when people find out about back-scratching and when they find out about selling out, um, or they accuse people of that, they, they have a responses to it that are very like the kind of reactive attitudes that we associated with moral failures, failings of virtue. Blame, blame people for doing that. You get angry and indignant by what these people have done. How could they just praise this person who's their friend? How could they like, give up all their you know, creative ambitions just to make money? So I think that um, we have, again, this sort of, uh, the, the people who, who do aesthetically worthy actions, the right actions for the right reasons, we regard as admirable and praiseworthy. And on the, on the other hand, the ones who are not aesthetically worthy or doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, blame, disappointment, frustration, anger, indignation, all these kind of reactive attitudes that are very familiar to us from ethics applied here. Now, it could be, like I said, that we, we, we're thinking of them as having moral failings as well, and often there are, they said that these things are sort of combined a bit. But I, but I don't think that's the only thing that we're responding to. Um, and I don't think we're, we're confused in thinking that they're always moral mistakes. Like, if you're angry with somebody who you think is a great artist and capable of great work, and they've just not done it because... <coughs> They want to be famous, want money or something. That's not, you don't really confuse that they morally owe it. You think they're, they're not responding well to the aesthetic value and aesthetic reasons that are there. So I think that we could think of these reactive attitudes as responses to when people do well in response to value of different kinds or when people do it badly. And fair, when they're virtuous, 
we, we have these sort of positive ones, ad, ad, admiration and praise, and when they do it badly, we have these negative ones. And of course, depending, said so there are lots of different sorts of failure, and different reactive attitudes would be appropriate depending on the failure. Um, in response, these artists, these reviewers, were trying to defend themselves and say, no, it wasn't that I really wanted the money or it was just because it's my friend. Actually, this book is really good and here is why. Right? And point out the aesthetic features they're, they're responding to and try and make the case that they are doing aesthetically worthy actions. And similarly, the artists accused of selling out were, I think, say, this change of direction was not just motivated to be <coughs> more commercial. I thought this was the right way to go. I, there are aesthetic reasons for it. And what you see there, I think, is something that people often say is part of the moral reactive attitudes and the sort of moral negotiation about them, where you're trying to reach an understanding shared between you of what matters and why it matters. So in the moral case, when you have moral blame, you're trying to reach an understanding of what morally matters. In part, I mean, blame does other stuff too, I think, but that's in part what it's about. And in the aesthetic case, you're trying to reach this shared aesthetic understanding of what things are valuable and what aesthetic reasons there are out there and who's responded to them in the right way. Okay, um, so I've tried to say that we have this idea of right and wrong action, and we also have the idea of doing the right action for the right reasons or the wrong reasons in aesthetics, just as in ethics. When you do the right action for the right reasons in aesthetics, you're doing aesthetically worthy action, and you're admirable and you're praiseworthy, and when you're disposed to do aesthetically worthy actions, so you're disposed to do right aesthetic actions for the right reasons, you've got aesthetic virtue. So aesthetic virtue is this orientation of the self towards aesthetic value and aesthetic reasons, and it's fundamentally just the same as moral virtue. So it's dispositions to act, so characteristically do the aesthetically right action. Now, of course, there might not just be one thing that's the right action. There might be many, but you can choose one out of those. Action could be the creation of works of art, if you're an artist. And that could be literature or music or, or, or you know, visual arts or sculpture or anything like that. Um, and it can be the appreciation of artworks. So although I said right at the start that, you know, we might think of aesthetics as not being a practical subject and, in fact, sort of think the aesthete and the action hero are not, not, it's not much coinciding there. Actually, a, a, appreciation is also an activity where you direct your attention, <coughs> where you try to understand what's going on, where you ex try and talk to other, explain with other people or talk to them about what's going on in this work of art and why, you know, what is the artist trying to achieve and why. Um, these are activities as well. So you can do that in the right sort of way, um, as the virtuous do, or the wrong sort of way, as the, the book reviewers who were like, praising their friends did, or the snobs did, right, where they went to the opera so they could be seen at the opera. Okay. Um, so we have action. So aesthetics is a practical subject, I say. Um, we also have non-cognitive attitudes. So these are probably the, like, not so much of a stretch when you think about aesthetics. You're thinking about non-cognitive attitudes. You're thinking about the pleasure you take in beautiful works of art. Um, but also this said motivations, like a desire or motivation to create a work of art because it's of its value. Right? They want to make something good. And you want to appreciate it because it's good. And these are not necessarily that easy motivations to, to have and to, 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 um, to keep hold of because there are, there are all sorts of interfering factors. So I mentioned like, you know, how expensive works of art are. Um, we know that affects how people make their aesthetic judgments and what, yeah, what they care about. We know that like, aesthetic judgments and aesthetic responses are ways of joining social groups. And again, we care about that as well. So the important thing is to make sure that their aesthetic motivations are to the fore. Right? Just like in the shopkeeper, 
uh, when we talked about moral virtue, you can have all kinds of other motivations, but the moral ones have to be the sort of lead ones, right? You can want your shop to be profitable, but not at the expense of being honest. Well, you can want to join social groups, and you can want to have expensive artworks on your walls, if you want. Um, and artists can want to make a living. There's nothing wrong with that at all, but there needs to be combined in the right sort of way with responding to aesthetic value and aesthetic reasons. <coughs> the last part I, I talked about with moral virtue was cognitive attitudes. And again, I think we see exactly the same thing, that having the, making the right aesthetic judgments for the right reasons is part of aesthetic virtue. So aesthetic, the virtuous person characteristically has the, the right sort of cognitive attitudes in response to aesthetic reasons and value. And again, I think that's understanding. I think that's understanding why um, the work of art is good or this you know, appreciating it is the right thing to do. So I said I wasn't going to say a lot about this, but I will just say a little bit because I think aesthetics, even perhaps more than ethics, might be a place where people are inclined to think that's much too intellectual. You can be a great artist, maybe much so much a great critic or reviewer or something, but, um, but you can certainly be a great artist without having much idea of what, why you're doing what you're doing. So why did you compose music in this way, <coughs> paint in this way? You might think, well, you can be a great artist without having really anything much to say about that or even much awareness of why you're doing it. You just produce great works of art. But I think, though tempting, <clears throat> a tempting thought, I think those, if there are people like that, and I suspect actually great artists generally have a good idea what they're doing. Um, so I suspect there aren't very many people who are you know, inspired and, and not aware of what, what they're responding to. Um, if there are like that, they are less than fully virtuous, less than perfectly virtuous. And I think we can see that it is an important part of aesthetics um, too, to, to be called on to explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. So I said when you're accused of acting for the wrong sorts of reasons, you might expect somebody who's virtuous to be able to say, no, this is why I'm, what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. This was, a, this was a chosen change of artistic direction because of this sort of reason. <coughs> I wanted to change, I wanted to do a new style, I wanted to change things for these, these aesthetic reasons. So they can be called on to explain and defend yourself in aesthetics in very similar ways to you can in ethics. We said, why did you do that? Well, I was helping this person um, and to defend and explain what you're doing. Um, both cases, what you're looking for in a virtuous person is to, to understand what they're doing, why it's the right thing to do. Okay, so that's... Again, just like in moral virtue, this general approach to value and reasons. But we can also see examples of specific virtues, and they're really similar, some of them, to the specific virtues we find in ethics. So I think it's very natural to talk about honesty in aesthetics, an honest artist who tries to make our art truthful, and the, there are various challenges and obstacles to doing that. So, so it might be commercially advantageous to, to, to not do that, to tell people what they want to hear, not what's really truthful. Um, it's say, easier or more comfortable for the audience or for the artist to portray stereotypes or cliches. You know, you can write your cliche or stereotype character really quickly. To get it, to get it right takes a lot more effort. I said people don't always want to hear it. But that's what you should do. That's what an honest artist will do. And will do it because she cares about getting it right. Aesthetic value. And she thinks that that's the right thing to do. You shouldn't go about producing art that's full of stereotypes. That is not, not the right thing to do. Courage is also very natural to talk about um, artists. Or, or in fact, in, um, like, from the point of view of appreciation. So a courageous writer, say, characteristically willing to take risks, do something kind of frightening, uh, to explore a new aesthetic form, 
so you imagine somebody who's written like, traditional verse or, or, or kind of classic novel and thinks, well, I've done that. What I really need to do now is explore a new form, a new, like a free verse or a, a modernist novel that, that has very different sort of form or you know, do something completely different. But it's risky. It might go wrong. I might, you know, I might fail or it might be really embarrassing or something. And, and it takes some courage to take that aesthetic risk to do something with a bit of courageous writer will do that um, because she wants to get it right because cares about value um, and will think it's the right thing to do for the same reason whereas someone less courageous will be a bit more cautious kind of well, I'll stick with what I know there's the successful formula carry on like that um, and not you know not be responding to the aesthetic reasons that, that apply to her so there can be, I think you can see it in a very pure aesthetic form there, aesthetic courage, where you're, you know, you're taking a risk for the sake of aesthetic value. Um, and the risk is, is kind of in, in the aesthetic realm. But the risk can also be much more of well, other kinds. Um, so there can be, it can be transgressive social or political norms or authorities to do work that you think is important. Um, so... An example of this is Shostakovich, who I wrote about in the paper a bit, um, who was a composer writing under the most difficult social and political circumstances um, in Stalinist and Soviet Union. Um, and I think when you think of Shostakovich's response to those circumstances, it's very natural to think in virtue terms. So, and if, and you know, uh, at the time, Stalin took a close personal interest in the music that was written. And regularly, composers would be denounced and disappear, or their music would no longer be played, or they would be sacked from their positions. So there were, it was a very risky thing, producing new music in Stalinist Soviet Union. And so you have some choices if you're a composer. Um, do you try to do the work that you think is important? Do you try to um, do the sort of thing that Stalin will like or that will make you popular and keep you alive? Um, what about when somebody else is denounced? Do you try and stand up for them? That's very, very dangerous. And Shostakovich is kind of a very interesting character because he's, he's sort of... He's not ideally virtuous. He's not a hero. He doesn't. He, he does denounce himself sometimes, and and doesn't stand up for for everybody else. But at the same time, he doesn't give in completely. He does produce some work that is intended to please Stalin, but he also does some that is well. Some people think are smuggled in criticisms, and he certainly carried on in secret composing the works that followed his own vision. So it's natural to talk about, well, he was courageous up to a point, but not as courageous as he might have been. He was honest up to a point because he kept, he, he did keep <coughs> his own vision of what was important, and others kind of collapsed under the pressure of trying to please senses and just gave up. So he kept going. But he didn't do it completely publicly and say, no, you're wrong, I am right, and right. But so, so there were limits to it. But I think it's, he's, interesting because, he's an interesting character because of that mixture, but also because of how natural it is to talk about him in terms of, in virtue terms, where some of that is, is moral. You think maybe standing up for someone else who's being denounced is a moral courage is called for there. It's somebody else's interests and needs here that are at stake. But at other times, it's really aesthetic value that he's standing up for you know is he composing works that that are good or works that you know are, are meet the standards of the you know, the, the stalin um so it's it's partly moral virtue but it's not just that it's also i think a distinctively aesthetic kind of virtue that you want to say well he's sort of he's somewhere there but not he does quite well but he could have done better yeah <coughs> So it's a nice illustration of, 
of how aesthetic virtue, I think, is important and it's very natural to use here and how it sort of can, it can connect and has these um, sometimes quite close connections with moral, moral virtue. Okay, I'm going to move on to the final bit now. Having, I hope, persuaded you that aesthetic virtue is this important idea that it plays a role in aesthetics, not unlike, you can see in, in the moral case. Um, I said I, I thought there was this interesting question of whether it's helpful to um, aesthetic virtue as a means or a way of becoming morally virtuous. So I said some philosophers have seemed to have thought that, perhaps Plato is one of them, Iris Murdoch, perhaps another one. Um, and there are some reasons for thinking they might be right. You might think, well, if you develop aesthetic virtue, you develop some general traits of character that will do you good when you move on to the moral, moral questions, moral sphere. For example, having a strong will to overcome motivations, temptations to do something else is going to be important in aesthetics. Um, but it's also going to be important in ethics. So if you've generally got a strong will, so you, like, you decide this is the thing to do, this is what I ought to do, you're not going to be moved from that. That could be useful in both cases. Imagination, to think, well, what could I do? What are the options and um, what are they like so that you can kind of evaluate them? Um, that's obviously important in aesthetics, both for the, for the artist, I think, what, what am I going to produce? But also, I think, in the appreciator, to think, well, what, how... In what ways could this have gone differently and would it have been better or worse like that? And imagination is not always talked about in ethics, but, also, but it has exactly those same kinds of role where you have to imagine what, what you might do next and whether it's a good idea. What options could I have? How, could I, how can I meet these, um, all the moral demands on me at the same time? Can I, can I think of a way of doing that? Again, very similar sort of thing. So imagine that if you've got good imagination, then it will go across. And there are, so, you know, developing the same skills, and there are a couple of reasons for thinking this might be easier to do or better to start with in aesthetics, so aesthetics can be a sort of training ground for you. And one is that there's, a, there's an idea that aesthetic value, I mean, particularly perhaps if you think of beauty, is, is pretty obvious and immediately attractive to us. So you can just, you can look at a beautiful painting and it's obviously beautiful and you're just drawn to it. And that's not always the case with moral, moral, the morally right thing to do. It's not obvious what it's right thing to do is. And it's not obviously attractive either. It can be very difficult for us. <coughs> so I mean, certainly that's one of the thoughts in Plato, that beauty is, is kind of easier for us to see. And then we get the idea of it, and that, we, that helps us get the idea of, of moral value. And so lower stakes. So you might think, well, it's helpful to... There are, Trouble with sort of developing moral virtue is if you get it wrong, you do some quite, you can do some quite seriously wrong things. You can you can hurt people, you can violate their rights, you can wrong them in various ways, and that's really bad. Whereas if you get things wrong in aesthetics, you make a really bad piece of art, or write a terrible novel, or bad poetry, or you you know you're liking the wrong things, you're taking pleasure in the wrong sort. Of, right? It's it's not great, but it's not so bad. So it would be useful to develop these skills in a place where if it goes wrong, it doesn't matter so much, and then you can transfer them to the sort of higher stakes in ethics. Well, I think, the, that, again, that contrast is very much overstated, I think, um, in particularly that um, moral questions are not always high stakes, and aesthetic value is not always very obviously attractive, I think. I mean, it, it, it can be difficult to tell whether works of art are aesthetically valuable. So I think that's the, the differences are overstated there. But in general, I think there's also a problem that, that it's not obviously exactly the same skills, the sort of general skill that you can apply in the different domains that you are developing when you develop virtue. So it's a very obvious point, but great artists are not always morally good people. In fact, perhaps they're not often not morally good people. And morally good people are not always great artists, or even good at appreciating art, perhaps. Now, in part, that might be that to be a good artist or a good appreciator, maybe there are certain background conditions that are important that aren't important for moral virtue. So maybe you need to be a good artist, you need artistic skill. 
you know, being good, literally good draftsman or good stylish writer. And you don't need those skills to be morally virtuous. Perhaps you need some knowledge of the history of art to, you know, to know what would be a good development if you're an artist or to appreciate other people's developments if you're a, a, a critic. And again, you don't need history of art lessons to be morally virtuous. So there are those differences, but I think there is more than that. As I've said already, we can see the moral virtues being applied in aesthetic cases where you morally owe, you've, you've promised, say, to produce a certain kind of work of art, and then you're morally obliged to do that. Or I said, maybe Shostakovich was under some sort of moral duty to stand up for some of the other composers. And that was a, more, a failure of moral courage for him not to do that. But I actually think that the, the virtues of, that I described earlier, aesthetic, aesthetic honesty and aesthetic courage, are different virtues to moral, moral courage and moral honesty. So take honesty first. I think truthfulness of a sort is valuable in aesthetics and ethics. And there are similar temptations not to be truthful to self-interest, social pressures, political pressures, commercial pressures, and so on. You know, deception can be very advantageous in all these sorts of ways. So you have these motivations not to do it. So honesty is a virtue because there's this goal that's valuable and these sort of challenges, obstacles in its way. But I don't think that the truthfulness is necessarily exactly the same in both cases. So I think that um, the kind of truthfulness that we're talking about in aesthetics is consistent with basically what would be considered deception, like not telling the truth in a moral kind of case. So you write a historical novel, and it contains some artistic truth, but lots of historical inaccuracy, for instance. I think that's probably not morally the right thing to do, but could be aesthetically the right thing to do. So I think there's a different goal. And in, in the courage case, you know, that you're overcoming frightening, dangerous situations, but for a different goal in both cases. For moral value in one case, that's like people's interests, welfare, needs, rights, all that sort of thing. And in the other case, for aesthetic value, for works of art, for appreciation, for creation, and so forth. So we can both cases we're seeing them as correctives to temptation to do the wrong thing, but in different sorts of ways and for different sorts of response, different actions, different motivations, different judgment, different sorts of judgments. Now aiming at aesthetic understanding versus moral understanding. So I think it's just implausible that what you've got here is a sort of broad disposition to respond well to value that you can then apply in these different <coughs> domains. Rather, what you're doing is developing a specific kind of response to this sort of value. And then you've got to develop a different sort of response to this other kind of value to be you know, aesthetically virtuous on one hand, morally virtuous on the other. And I said, I've said a bit, a bit about this already, but I think that the reactive attitudes we have to either you know, exemplars of virtue or failures are really similar. We have praise, we have admiration on the positive side, we have blame, frustration, indignation, resentment, so on, on the, on the lower side. But again, they're not, the, the aesthetic ones are not necessarily exactly the same. They're sort of aesthetic analogues of these, where you are responding to failures to respond to aesthetic, aesthetic value. So what I, I think of it is that there are fundamentally deep similarities between them but they are directed at different sorts of value. So they are different, different virtues. Okay, so when you see things like that, I think you start to get a different sort of worry, which is, are these actually in tension or in conflict? Um, is aesthetic virtue not a means and a help to moral virtue, but a hindrance, or something that stands in the way? And there's sort of, you know, I said that we tend to think that there are great artists who are not lovely people, and vice versa. Morally good people who are not great artists, so it looks like 
you know, if you took that seriously, you might think, well, maybe they're great artists partly because they're not very nice people. Um, you know, in, the, in the philosophy literature, are we familiar with Gauguin, who's written about by Bernard Williams, precisely as somebody who has to um, um, fail morally in, in many ways, not all of which Williams talks about, fail morally in many ways in order to develop as an artist. And there are other examples that people cite, maybe Beethoven is an example of somebody who developed as an artist precisely through neglecting moral claims on him. So you might pick out people from the history of great artists and say, well, were they particular, were they, did they develop their aesthetic virtue partly by becoming less morally virtuous? Worse people, morally speaking. You also might think there's a sort of abstract or theoretical reason for worry here. I've said that virtue is an orientation towards value. But if we have two kinds of value, you might think, well, is it possible to be fully oriented towards this value at the same time as being fully oriented towards this other kind? Aren't they they're two different poles? You can't be attracted towards both of them. They're intention. So I think there is a tension here. But I think in some ways it's overstated and, and that there are various ways that it can be minimised. So the first thing to notice, although though virtue requires orientation, orientation doesn't require single-minded devotion to that thing at the exclusion of everything else. So I already talked about that when I talked about the shopkeeper who cares about being honest to his customers but also wants his business to be successful. <laughs> or the artist who wants to produce great art, but also to make a living. Not a problem. You can be virtuous, you can be perfectly morally virtuous or aesthetically virtuous and care about other stuff too. So virtue allows for other motivations and interests. So there is scope for being oriented towards two things. Of course, there may still be conflicts and then you may have this question, well, when there is a conflict, does one have always have priority? So I think this is a place where history of philosophy people have taken different views. I'm not going to take a view on it here. <coughs> um, I mean, somebody like Kant would say, well, the moral always has priority. It overrides. So there's never scope for thinking aesthetics always becomes, becomes more important. Whereas someone like Nietzsche, was thinking of the great artists as great men, as well, um, might think, well, developing aesthetic virtue is perfectly good and perhaps even better sometimes than, than moral virtue. So it can over aesthetics can aesthetic reasons can override moral ones. So I'm not going to take a stand on that. What I will say though is that some of these conflicts depend on circumstances. And so one thing we can do is turn to social and political circumstances and see whether they are conducive or not conducive to developing both kinds of virtue at the same time. <coughs> so social and political arrangements can make carrying out your moral duties, your duties to people who are in need or to your family, say, more onerous by giving you very little support for doing that or less onerous by giving you much more support. And of course, the more support you get, the easier it is to carry out your moral duties and also do other things too. So on the moral side, moral virtue can be kind of assisted and supported by some social and political arrangements and be less good with others. On the aesthetic side, how available are, is, aesthetic, is training in aesthetics? So how available are works of art? Can you go and look at works of art for free? Can you get books from the library for free or not? Is it expensive? Is it difficult to get the sort of exposure to and training in um, works of art and aesthetic traditions and so on that you might need to appreciate it properly or to become an artist yourself? So one way we can respond to this conflict is to say, well, we can make development of virtue easier and conflicts between them less 
by social and political arrangements, and that's what we should be looking for. Of course, you can have the same tension at the institutional level of which ones do you support. But the hope would be that you can put resources there that makes it the individual less less required to choose between them. So we should aim for social and political circumstances that allow us as far as possible to have moral and aesthetic virtue. I'll stop there. Thank you.